Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts hi everyone sophia bush here welcome to work in progress where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Today's guest is a very dear friend of mine. In fact, she is a sister friend. And what I mean by that is she's the kind of soul friend who feels like my family. And she happens to be the one and only Glennon Doyle. I met Glennon years ago, and I am telling you guys, we instantly hit it off. Her honesty and the way she shares about her life and welcomes everyone into her circle, her horseshoe, in fact, is so inspiring to me. Today, we're going to talk about how we met. We're going to go through her story. We're going to dig into why we need to change the expectations we put on girls and how we raise them. And of course, we're going to talk all about her latest book, Untamed, which you absolutely have to read. We started chatting right away about being morning people and how she takes advantage of the early hours of the day. So if you're catching this first thing in the morning, you're welcome. And if you're catching it later, you're still going to be inspired. I promise she's that good. Enjoy. Are you a morning person? I am only a morning person. And I, and I actually think that's why I get, I'm done by five because I'm usually up three hours earlier, two, three hours earlier than everyone in the house. So I'm usually up by five. I figured out a long time ago, especially with little ones, when they were when my kids were little, that that was the only time I was myself. Mm. There, there was, and also I'm most creative in the morning. That's the only time I can really write creatively is first thing in the morning. 
but there's something about like being a woman that the minute the world wakes up, you just get thrown into a million different roles and Mm -hmm. and service and showing up and all the things. And so I figured out that there were a couple magical hours in the morning where I was like, nobody's mom, nobody's wife, nobody's boss, nobody, like I was completely outside of roles and it really feels like soul time to me. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm like pulling one over on the world. Cause like I've already been up for hours before everybody else gets started. So it makes me <laughs> <feel> like, <laughs> like, like if I do nothing else the rest of the day, I've already done my thing. Cause I've usually done creative by the time the sun comes up, but yeah, that's my magic time. I like magic time. Yeah. It's if I don't have it for a while, I feel myself start to get itchy. You know, and I always ask women because I just, it's like that time, you know, in Untamed where one of the themes is like when I saw Abby, then I thought there she is. It's Mm -hmm. like, that's why there she is time about me. Mm, About yourself. Yeah. And I, I think we're all in this moment of reckoning or awakening where we realize we have to feel that way about ourselves. We've been cultured for so long to think that what we need is outside of ourselves. It's in our person. It's in our partner. It's in the Disney prints. It's in the body we want to have or or the house we want to move into or the Pinterest board that will eventually become our life if we try hard enough. And we spend all this time folding ourselves into these weird little pretzels and then we wonder why our bones hurt. Because mm-hmm. nobody ever talked to us about the reality that it has to be in us. It has to be of us. The thing we're looking for is us. Yeah. That's why I love your book so much. Well, it's just hustle culture, man. Hustle culture. It's just, I can't. I can't. Mm -mm. It feels like, that's why I put the story in the beginning of Untamed about the chasing. The chasing of the dirty things, right? Yes. You know, really and truly, it's simple at the end of the day. It's that we are born and then as women, and men have their own. Mm-hmm. ridiculous ideals and expectations, but ours are uh, clear and we get these ideals put in front of us and these like things that they tell us will make us happy and will make us feel like we belong and will make us feel successful and will make it. And then we just spend our whole lives hustling to, to, to achieve those things. Mm. And, and they're all the things you just said. I mean, you know, their beauty standards, their career standards, their personality standards. And then the crazy thing is, is that sometimes we get lucky enough to get those things. And then we realize that we're still ourselves (laughs) and that it fits nothing, right? Mm -hmm. Which is tragic at first. And then awesome, because at some point you realize, oh, it's not that I'm not enough yet. It's the hustle. The hustle culture is the problem. Yeah. And and to your point, there are there are universal truths to this. I I have a friend named Lewis who, much like Abby, did a lot of sport. He was he he became he he's a sport person. He became an all American athlete, which was the thing he'd always wanted. And he said the euphoria lasted for about eight minutes, and then he went right back to being angry. And and his his male version of this stuff was all of the sort of shaming and and rage culture and all the stuff that destroys boys. 
and and he got the joy for eight minutes and then he was right back to being angry and what like that's the ultimate for the boy like in our only mm-hmm. only gain your worthiness for boys by you know of course all the the emotion suppression and, and only they're only allowed to be angry we're not allowed to be angry they're only allowed to be angry um right. but professional sports i mean that's like should be mm. right that would be like the epitome of a woman you know becoming a supermodel while making the perfect home while having 3.5 children while having the loving marriage that's like the epitome of male success so how terrible yeah to even reach the epitome and realize there's mm-hmm. no there there. There's no there there. Uh, we, well, we've just jumped right into this, which doesn't surprise me because I've never not jumped right into things with you. When we met, this was years ago, you were, you were doing this incredible speaking tour. Um, I, I figure I should give the audience a little backstory on how we're able to do this together. And I was so excited. I I was working in Chicago at the time and you guys were doing a Chicago stop and and you had asked if I would come and do this conversation with you. And, you know, it's at this enormous theater auditorium. I mean, what do you even call that arena? I don't know, a sport place (laughs) in Chicago. And we met in the back uh, before we went on stage and we were just we were barefoot on the couch together in 32 seconds holding on to each other's bodies just like oh thank god you're here and I thought oh this is one of my people how cool I I know when I meet my people and and yeah we've we've been friends ever since we've done a lot of speaking together ever since and there we had a fun we had a fun little secret exchange which we'll we'll get into later that happened on that first night mm-hmm. but I just remember thinking, here's a person who says out loud a lot of things that I think on the inside that I haven't always been sure I'm allowed to say out loud. But when I do, I always feel better. And I know that that is a way that so many people feel about you and about your work and about the way that you're willing to share yourself, not just for yourself, but but in a way because when you stand steady in front of the fire, you show everyone else it's possible too. You you welcome everybody else to the bonfire with you. I'm very honored to know you. You do the exact same thing, so that's how we knew we were people. We were each other's people. Isn't that weird? When I think about that, that is so weird because I feel like you are a cozy person. Okay, I'm not that cozy of a person. <laughs> Abby has always said, and she said this one time and it hurt my feelings so much until we got to the bottom of it. She said, you know, you are a lot of things, but nice is not one of them. You're not nice. And I was like, the kids were, it was in front of the kids. And I was like, so devastated. But the point being that it is very unusual. I am a raging introvert and I'm super sensitive. And so I am and boundaries are like my, my, the loves of my life are Abby, my children, coffee, boundaries. <laughs> okay. Mm. <laughs> um, so the fact that I walked into a room and you and I were, were in um, barefoot and, and I remember I didn't want to go back to the stage. I remember just thinking, can we just stay here on the couch forever? Like, can we not go to the mm-hmm. stage? There were all the thousands of people out there and we had to go back. <laughs> 
But I think it's so cool when you're saying that, that sometimes that happens and you just know the energy is there and you know this is going to be your person. And we celebrate that, right? As mm-hmm. when, when that happens. And it just makes me think we should also honor it when the opposite happens. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, we don't feel the need to explain why that happened with us or why the energy was just perfect. We don't say, oh, well, are you, you were such a good person and I'm such a good person. And so that's why this happened. We just honor the kind of collective energy that was matched. But like when we don't feel that energy with someone, we always feel like we have to explain it a million ways or blame on the other person's personality or blame it on our personality when often people's energy just aren't right for each other. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and that that's okay. But again, I think that speaks to us always having been told we have to be nice. We have to be welcoming. We have to smile. Think about when you watch somebody tell their, their, three-year-old child that they have to hug a relative who's unfamiliar to that child and then that little baby learns that their feeling of "Uh uh-uh I don't want to in their body doesn't matter because you're gonna hug this person because it's nice we're we're taught from such an early age to go against our own instincts and then especially heaven forbid as women if we don't like something or we just don't feel free or complete around someone well then we must be she's a bitch if she thinks that you know totally and the 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 extra heavy messages i mean the studies about like even even awake parents okay even parents Mm -hmm. think that we are doing it equally when when they're studied the the number of of social cues that parents give to little girls versus little boys about being nice about about being likable, like those ideas that we have about, and, and it's not because we're bad people as parents. It's because we were raised in a culture that taught us a million different ways that little girls will only be loved and accepted if they are accommodating and sweet and, and they abandon themselves in order to not rock the boat. And they, they, they cause it, allow themselves to have constant inner conflict. So mm-hmm. it cause outer conflict. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's what we do. We want our kids to be accepted. So we subconsciously pass these expectations on to our little girls. And then this is what I find fascinating, Sophia. And I can't wait to get your take on this. The amount of people who say to me, okay, and they say this with all good intention. Hey, I want to support women. I want to support women like you do. I want to love women like you do. I want to whatever. But the women are always the ones stabbing me in the back. The women are always the ones talking behind my back. The women are always the ones. And I think it's so interesting because I actually know what they're saying. Like, I I understand. Like, it's not, we can't be just like, pretend that that's never true as feminists. Like, we can't be like, oh, they don't. That's never happened to me because of course it has. Okay. Right? We all know that that has happened to us. But I, I wonder if... If women would stab each other in the back less, if as little girls, we were allowed to stab each other in the face more, right? Mm. It's like directness and transparency and just saying how you feel Mm -hmm. 
much more allowed in little boys than it ever is in little girls, right? We are trained constantly to swallow it and smile, swallow it and smile, be pleasant and be pleasant, but we're just as human, right? So what happens when a little, when a person's swallowing it and smiling all the time is it always comes out sideways, mm-hmm. right? Well, the way I think about it, the image that comes to mind for me, and I don't know why, because I don't scuba dive. So literally, I don't know why this happened. But you know, like scuba divers wear those oxygen tanks on their backs, and those tanks are pressurized. And if you put too much oxygen in a tank, it will explode. Yes. And and so when anything is overly pressurized, it blows a gasket, it blows a leak, like pipes in a house will burst and then the basement floods because there's too much volume for the amount of space. And I think that's what happens to girls and that's what happens to women. We've been forced to do exactly what you said, swallow it, swallow it, swallow it, swallow it. And we get so overfilled that then these things, it's like when the daggers shoot out of the woman's eyes at someone, that's not even about the person she's looking at. When when you express anger or frustration about something or you think someone is annoying, it might not even be about them. It's about the fact that you've not been able to talk about how someone hurt you years ago for so long that now you think everyone is kind of a dickhead who hurts you. You know, little little boys just like punch each other on the playground and then they're over it. They're allowed to do more of that. Mm-hmm. Right? So so what, why aren't women more direct? Because they're trained not to be direct. Well, okay? and this is exactly where, and this was supposed to be my first question, but haha, <laughs> I love that I thought I'd have a plan. This is where I want to go back and ask you to tell me the story of the cheetah and the pink bunny because you referenced it earlier. And I think it's such a soul-shaking, aha moment-providing way to start a book. And you open Untamed with this story. And then it made sense to me because when you sent me your book, you sent me this beautiful note. And you said to me, sister, you are a goddamn cheetah. And it made me cry. And I didn't even know the story yet. But I, I, like, I choked up when I looked at the note. So something in me knew exactly what you meant because I think it's something that's in all of us. So will you tell the people at home about cheetahs? I was looking for a metaphor, okay, because I had just gone through this experience, which I wrote about in Untamed, which is that I was in a broken marriage with a good man. Mm -hmm. Okay. That is a very tricky place for a woman to be because we're supposed to just be grateful for good enough, right? I just kept trying to make it good enough. I just kept trying to do all the right things I was supposed to do to have forgiveness, just like fall to me, you know, fall on my head from the sky and feel better. But I was angry all the time, just angry all the time. And I, and I just felt this like longing, this nagging inside of me that just was this constant question. Like, wasn't it supposed to be more beautiful than this? Wasn't it supposed to be more beautiful than this? You know? And then I met Abby and, um, and that story's in, in Untamed. But after we'd been together for a little while, I took, we took our daughters to the safari park and we went to this thing called the cheetah run. Okay. And so we're, we're on the side uh, of this like racetrack kind of thing. And we're waiting for this cheetah run to start. The kids are so excited. There's all these families out and this zookeeper comes out and she's holding the leash of a, a Labrador. 
Okay. So I'm right away like, um, okay, I'm not a scientist, but if she tells my kids that this Labrador is a cheetah, I'm getting a refund, right? I'm getting my. <laughs> so she says, okay, kids, do you think that this, um, that this is Tabitha the cheetah? And the kids are all like, no. And she says, you're right. This is Minnie, Tabitha the cheetah's best friend. Tabitha was born into captivity, was born into the zoo. So we raised Tabitha alongside Minnie so that Minnie could tame Tabitha. And now Tabitha wants to do everything that Minnie does. So first, Minnie's going to run the cheetah run while Tabitha watches, and then Tabitha will run it. Okay. So this lab lines up on the starting line. This little weird Jeep thing has a pink stuffed bunny tied to it. The Jeep takes off. Minnie the lab chases this dirty pink bunny across the finish line. Yay, yay, yay. Okay. Then they pull Tabitha out. Okay. Tabitha the cheetah is the most gorgeous, huge, terrifying, majestic creature. She's like stalking her way to the starting line. Her muscles are rippling beneath her fur. The crowd's like all quiet. And the zookeeper says, go. And this gorgeous, majestic, wild animal chases this dirty, stuffed, pink bunny down this well-worn, narrow path that she's been doing every hour, every day since she was born. And the crowd is clapping, yay, 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 yay. And while the crowd's, crowd is clapping, so I just, I just thought, oh my God, this is it. This is what I have been doing. If it is possible for a wild animal like a cheetah to be tamed into forgetting who she is, mm. to be tamed into spending her entire one wild and precious life chasing somebody else's dirty pink bunnies, mm. then that can happen to a woman too, right? That's when I figured out, oh, all of these things, be a good girl, be a good mom, be pretty, be accommodating, be uh, perfect, be, um, don't be ambitious, don't be, uh, all of these ideals and shoulds and shouldn'ts, I mean, all of the, the ones that had to do with religion and faith for me, and that had to do with gender and had to do with sexuality, all of these cages I had been in, I just, I just started to see them as, oh, these are the dirty pink bunnies that somebody else planted for me. A long time ago. And the reason why I am exhausted and the reason why I'm overwhelmed and underwhelmed and I don't feel like I am living my true purpose is because I'm chasing somebody else's dirty pink bunnies. Mm. And then, so, okay, so the zookeeper puts Tabitha away in like this big field and she comes back and she says, are there any questions? And this little girl raises her hand and she says, is Tabitha sad? Doesn't Tabitha miss the wild? And the zookeeper says, oh, no, honey, she was born here. This is a good, safe life for Tabitha. She doesn't even know any better. Mm. And my daughter is standing next to me, and she nudges me, right? And she points at Tabitha. And in this bigger field, so Tabitha is like a different creature, okay? She's, she's just 
she her she's like sit, standing up like her her neck just has grown six inches and she's stalking the periphery of the field just like looking out beyond the field at some place we can't see it's like uh she looks completely majestic now like and a little scary hmm. and tish goes mommy she turned wild again mm. god i have the chills and i just looked at her and thought okay i don't believe you zookeeper I don't believe that she doesn't know better. Like this might be all she's ever seen, but she knows somewhere. Like if we could talk to that cheetah, she would say, I don't know what's wrong with me. I know that all there is is cages and dirty pink bunnies and labs. But inside me, I feel like I was meant to sleep under starless skies. I feel like I was meant to hunt and kill. I just feel like it was all supposed to be more beautiful than this. Mm -hmm. Right? There's something mm -hmm. inside that animal that knows better. This is the voice of longing, right? This is the voice that we all have that looks at our lives and our relationships and our communities and our nation and our world and says, I know this is all I've ever seen, but I just have a hunch it's supposed to be more beautiful than this. Mm -hmm. Then comes the universal gaslighting of women, mm. right? Then when we say, no, I just don't think this is right. I don't feel, I feel like this isn't right. Then the whole world goes, oh, just be grateful. Just be grateful. You're crazy. Mm. That's crazy. That's crazy. She's crazy. She's cr right? That's why the last line of that was, you're not crazy. You're a goddamn cheetah. Mm -hmm. Because because had Tabitha been able to say, I have these hunches, I have these this vision that is supposed to be more beautiful than this, actually remembering her her destiny that was that was the wilderness, the rest of the world would have said to her, don't be crazy. This is what your life is. Mm. You're, like, You're a lab. You're a lab. We trained you to be a lab, right? And that's what happened to me, man. I mean, that's what happens to all of us. We are born mm. wild individual selves. And then because of the way civilization is set up, we begin to be assimilated into zoos, right? We have to be assimilated into families, into social groups, into religions, into uh, genders, into sexualities, into nations, right? And the cost, we have set up systems where the cost of belonging is your individuality. Mm. If you are a girl, this is how you act. And if you don't act this way, you will be tribal shamed. You are a Christian and this is what you will believe and this is what you will say. And here are the people you will hate. And if you don't and you dare to admit that you don't, you will be tribal shamed. Here's what a boy does. If you step out of line, right? Here's what a straight person does. Here's what uh, um, an American does. God help mm. us. We'll follow like the patriotism line, right? So what I am obsessed with right now is, and by the way, like bless our hearts. We know the way that we have survived is to give up some of our individuality for the protection of the herd, mm. right? That is evolutionarily in us mm -hmm. that we need in order to survive, we need the protection of the herd. But now, Sophia, I feel like we are actually at this point that is a changing time in the history of the world. And what I mean by that is I think now our survival as a species is going to be resisting that urge mm. to give our individual voices for belonging. Right? Yes. And I think part of it is because not to get too, you know, 
conspiracy theory on it, but there are big forces in the world that have made a lot of money and clutched a lot of power by taking advantage of the human instinct to protect the herd. And now it's not so much about protecting each other so we survive. It's about hoarding and calling that protection. If we were really prioritizing our human herd, we would have universal health care. We would have the best education system in the world. Our kids wouldn't be going to school in schools that are jokes. Our teachers wouldn't be paid the least. We would be doing everything differently if we really were saying, hey, this is about our survival. But we, we market survival of us. We, we, we sort of like put that on like a sweater over a skeleton that is, it's me against you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think women are leading the reckoning of, oh no, I can't, I can't claim to love my children and not say something about other people's children being in cages. I can't say that I support women, but sit silently when I hear women talking poorly about another woman. I can't, we, we have to align our identity and our values. And I think that those things, to your point, come from the knowing We're dropping below the culturing and we're dropping into the knowing. And we know there's something out in that field like Tabitha did. Yeah, because, and that's, and and we call that that all different things, right? I mean, I call my knowing that thing inside me that always guides me towards the next right thing, right? Mm. The knowing, like when I figured out that none of the answers were outside of me and nobody else freaking knew what the hell I was supposed to do, right? So I could stop doing what I was trained to do as a girl, which is in every moment of uncertainty, look outside of myself instead of inside of myself, right? Because boys are trained to look inside themselves for wisdom and little girls are trained to look outside of themselves for consensus and permission and approval, right? Mm. We learned that right around 10 years old and then we became 44-year-old women who, in my case, are up at 3 a.m. Googling what should I do if my husband is a cheater, but a really good dad? So during that time in my life is when I realized, okay, uh, nobody else knows what I should do because nobody else has lived the, this life that I'm living with my pain and my talent and my potential and my purpose and my people mm-hmm. asking other people what they should do. It's just what, what I should do. It's like asking people for directions to places they've never been, right? Because everyone in our lives is the complete singular, unrepeatable, unprecedented experiment, right? And there's no map. All of our problems come from trying to find a map and there's no map. We're all just freaking clueless pioneers, right? So I figured out if I, this, if I looked inward, if I really got still enough, that there was kind of this strange nudge that I don't know how to describe because it's beyond language, but I describe it in Untamed as like this kind of liquid gold that if I just like, turn inward for long enough, there will be this filling or this nudge that will point me towards the next right thing, one thing at a time, right? But I don't think of it, of Tabitha's turning inward as that. I feel like Tabitha's turning inward, that place that she, that we all find inside of ourselves that says it's supposed to be more beautiful than this. I think of that as imagination, Mm. okay? I think imagination 
is faith to me. And I, I'll try to describe that. Faith to me has absolutely nothing to do with religion. It has nothing to do with like following a set of rules that were set by a bunch of old white men eons ago to control the world. Like that's not what I mean. What I, my favorite definition of faith is the unseen order of things. Okay. Mm. It's a belief in the unseen order of things. It's like, there's two orders of things. There's the visible order, which is reality. What we would know as the material world, like what we see when we turn on the news, what's happening out there. And then there's an unseen order and that's inside of us. And that's the part of us that when we look at that seen order, even though it's the only thing we've ever known, rejects it. It's like, that's not right. The world's not supposed to be like that. There's supposed to be less pain. There's supposed to be more equality. Children are supposed to be fed. Women are supposed to be like, that's because we have this unseen order pressing inside of us, inside mm. of us. It's saying, oh no, it's supposed to be more beautiful than this. And we don't trust that, right? Because we look outside of ourselves and we think that's as good as it's ever going to get. Mm. And I really believe that imagination or that place we go to, to look for the unseen order. It's not imagination. Isn't where we go to escape reality. It's where we go to discover the truest reality that we were meant to bring forth into the world. Right. Because that's how, that's why we're born. We're all born to bring something new to the world that the world has never seen before, whether it's an idea or a poem or a garden or a business or a family or whatever it is. Mm. So what I've started to realize, like whenever people talk to me about why they can't do the thing they were, they know to do, you know, because we all have that discontent or we have that longing inside of us. So people will say to me, you know, I want to quit drinking, but I can't, I want to go back to nursing school, but you know, a good mom is supposed to stay home with her kids. I want to leave my emotionally abusive husband, but I made my bed. And so I have to lie in it or whenever they talk to me in the language of should and shouldn't Mm. or bad or supposed to, or right and wrong. What's the right thing to do? All that language is indoctrination. There's no good and bad. That's there's no should and shouldn't. There is no right and wrong. Those are all culturally constructed, right? Because like, for example, so when, when I found out about the infidelity, Craig's infidelity, I lived in this, I still do kind of live in this wild Venn diagram where I'm like half feminist, half Christian, wacko place to be. Right? And one thing that was so fantastic for me is when I started looking into what I should do in the, in the wake of infidelity, Feminists said the right thing to do was one thing. All Christians said the right thing to do was the opposite thing. What I realized is right and wrong, they're not pure. They're completely culturally constructed man-made concepts, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dogs that keep the, the masses in the herd. That's it. So if you want to know what was meant for your one wild and precious life you can't use language like that right and wrong good and bad none of that matters so what I started to do is when women would tell me I can't do this or I should or shouldn't I'd say okay stop tell me what is the truest most beautiful story about a marriage you can imagine tell me I want to I want to go back to nursing school but I can't because you know a good mother blah 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 okay 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 what is the truest most beautiful story you could tell me about a career right? What is the truest, most beautiful story you could tell me about your community? What is the truest, most beautiful story you could tell me about a friendship? 
And this crazy thing happens, which is that when you, it's like we speak two different languages. We speak the language of our indoctrination with all the cans and can'ts and shoulds and shouldn'ts. But when you speak to somebody in the language of imagination by saying the words true and beautiful and story, mm-hmm. indoctrination shuts down and imagination ignites. Because imagination is a storyteller. Yeah. Right? And everybody, the minute you say, tell me the truth is most beautiful, blah, 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 their eyes light up and they have ideas. Mm-hmm. And they're all different. And, and it feels like those ideas come from, to your earlier point, the place where we know what's possible, where we know what's good for us. We do so much talking about the present and about the journey and about the things we've been through in our adult lives and how they led us to this place. But as you mentioned earlier, talking about the ways that you learned so early, I I want to jump back. And it's usually, again, where I start with people, but the forward motion here has been perfect and delicious. And I, I wonder if you draw the parallel not between Glennon today and Glennon who was Googling, what do I do if my husband has been cheating on me for a decade but is also a really good dad? Not not even that Glennon of a couple of years ago, but Glennon as a little girl. You know, you grew up in Virginia. I wonder now when you think about who that little girl was who was learning all those messages, what what are some of your early memories? What What's the beginning for you? Were you always inquisitive and curious and good with words? You know, who who was Glennon at eight or 10? Well, it's so sad for me to think about this because um, I don't remember because I became really, really sick. Mm. So I became seriously bulimic at 10 years old. And just never got a hold on it at all. And so it just got worse and worse. And so the next, my really, all of my growing up years, you know, 10 until I was 25, just became a series of um, diagnoses and therapists rooms and medications. And I was hospitalized my senior year. Hmm. Uh, they, my parents, we didn't have the right insurance for an eating disorder clinic. So I was actually put in a mental institution, like a mental hospital, which by the way, I loved. <laughs> so whenever people feel sorry for me about that, I'm like, no, no, no. It was way less crazy than high school. Okay. I was glad to be there. Um, for real, I was, it was a special place for many reasons, but um, I, because of that life that I had for so long, Sophia, I just, I realized not until a few years ago that my belief about myself, my deepest belief, like beneath all the like, I'm a feminist, is I'm crazy. Mm. Like, I just think that we kind of all have like this root shame belief that happens to us when we're little, because of some lie we're told. And, you know, like Abby's, Abby grew up a gay kid in the Catholic church. So we are still like yanking at that root belief that she is not loved by the divine, right? That but mine was really, I am crazy. And I think that I had a lot of evidence to support that, right? Mm-hmm. I think that because of that, I stopped trusting myself because 
because how can a crazy person be trusted not to sabotage her life and the lives of her family, right? But then I started raising this child who you know all about, Tish. And she, Sophia, is she is just a super, super sensitive kid. And, um, and I watch her. She cares the most amount about everything, about our family, about herself, about the world, about her friends, about mm-hmm. kids who are not her friends. She's, her heart breaks very easily. And she, she lives inside out. It's like she's mm-hmm. inside out, right? It's she's transparent mason jar. Okay? And, and what I, I mean, Sophia, I would never in a million years look at that child and say, oh, she's crazy or she's broken. I think so. I think she's like a prophet, you know? And I think in most cultures, for as long as time has happened, folks who are super sensitive, folks like you, folks like Tish, folks like me, in most cultures, we are identified early, right? We Mm -hmm. are noted to be a little bit eccentric, a little bit different, but crucial to the tribe's survival, because we are the canaries in the coal mine, right? We are people who can see things that other people can't see and who are willing to feel things that other people can't feel. Mm. Um, so we become in most cultures, you know, the, the shaman or the medicine men and women or the poets or the clergy or the, you know, the people who are standing on the bow of the Titanic going iceberg, iceberg. Mm-hmm. Our culture, we're so hell-bent on power and efficiency and speed at all costs that everyone else is just like, we just want to keep dancing, right? (laughs) So it's easier just to dismiss us and call Mm -hmm. us broken rather than understanding that we are responding appropriately to a broken system and that a wise culture would pay close attention Mm. to this, right? So it's revolving all of my ideas about myself as a child, which just, I am answering your question, which is that I, parenting Tish has, has helped me free myself because I realize now that I'm not crazy and was never crazy. Well, and that's what strikes me when I hear you talk about the the revelation really that your daughter is to you is that parenting her in a way allows you to reparent yourself. You know, you, you get to really create a healing in reverse. And when I think about the way that you love her and the way that you mother her and that Abby mothers her and that, and that Craig shows up for her as her dad, it's such an amazing thing to see a kid be so supported. And I think it's A, about you as a parent, and B, I think we're so lucky to be living in this time where we are in this awakening and where we do have this this kind of newer access. You know, my mom and I were talking about this a little bit and she said, you know, who you're going to get to be as a mom is different than who I had the opportunity to be as a mom. She was like, I didn't have all this research. We weren't talking about trauma. We, we weren't doing any of that. We were all kind of doing the best we could. And I think about the the shift in this generation and how big it is. When, when you think about what your resources were, were you, were you finding solace in 
books? Were you journaling? What were your outlets for all these big feelings that that you felt when you were Tish's age that obviously were coming out sideways in this eating disorder? Where where did you have an outlet in a good way? Yeah. Well, my only I believe that my only real good outlet was books. I have always and still do. I was always the kid who just was in the corner reading the same over and over and over again, right? That's always who I have been. And I just, I find it sometimes tricky. You, you wear your outsides on the, your insides on the outsides, which is probably why I felt comfortable right away with you in that room. But I usually don't feel that way. I usually feel anxious in, in like social situations because I feel like even if it's not to me, it always feels like we're acting. Like Mm -hmm. I don't understand it. It's like, like, I, I seriously can't understand it. We, Abby and I talk about this ad nauseum. She's like, what do you mean you don't understand? I'm like, I don't, like, when you walk into a room and you're like, hi, how are you? Hi. And then you talk about things like, like, like things that you don't really care about, right? Like, I don't know. I, I can't, I wish that I could do it better. But in books, it's never like that, right? It's like people are talking about their deepest, truest, realist things, so it's kind of like a way to get to the insides of people without having to deal with the outsides of people. That's what the book is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but I think that was a healthy outlet. I don't remember writing, writing a lot when I was really little. I think that for me, what my coping me- mechanism was, was food. I think that I learned early on that I was supposed to be happy. Yeah. Like, that's what we teach people. I mean, we do everything. They're going to feel anger and sadness and jealousy and fear. And that all of those things are completely normal, right? And that none of those things are bad, actually. They're all just the whole human experience. I didn't know that. Is that part of why, because, you know, you've talked publicly about some of the sort of guilt or shame that you associated with how you were feeling? Because you said my my childhood was pretty magical. Like, why did I feel so screwed up? Why did I feel so upset? Mm-hmm. Almost like you didn't feel like you had a right to feel your yes. feelings. Yes. And by the way, how often do you hear that? Mm-hmm. I get. I have a PO box that is just smashed with letters from women, like every week. And I would say that eighty percent, and I don't think it's exaggerating, eighty percent of each of these letters starts with. I know I should, I know other people have it worse than me. And I know I shouldn't feel this way, but I'm just going to tell you, like, we just don't feel like we have the right to a full human experience. If we haven't, if we're not in the middle of what we deem like capital T trauma at the moment, right? Like we think that we cannot be sad because someone else somewhere is sadder. Hmm which is exactly the same as saying I can't be happy because somewhere else, someone else might be happier somewhere. Like that's just not how any of this works. Right. It's not like a suffering Olympics. Like we actually are all, no matter what circumstances we're in, are going to experience the whole human drama. Right. So what does happen? I mean, I imagine your parents were afraid like you said, they didn't know what to do with you. Where do you put this kid with all these big feelings? This this behavior snowballs 
you know, through high school into your 20s. And then, Tish, then everything changes. So what, how, how do we, how do we get from teenager at the mental hospital to young mom trying to figure out what the hell she's going to do? Yeah. Oh my God. Well, I, um, I found out that I was pregnant on mother's day when I was 25 and I was, um, so freaking sick. I can't imagine that I wasn't close to death. I mean, I was, had, I was drinking myself to blackout every single night for years before that. And I had burned every single bridge in my life, all my relationships, all of it. And I found myself on a bathroom floor holding a positive pregnancy test. And it was one of those moments. It was, it was one of those imagination moments. It was a Tabitha moment. It was like, okay, I see all evidence on the outside of me, right? I see mm-hmm. what my life is. I see what a shit show I have created. I see that there is clearly no worse candidate for motherhood on the planet earth. And still like there's something inside of me that is saying yes. Like regardless of all of the evidence on the outside of me that is saying no, I feel this. It was like how I felt it, the two strongest moments I felt this are when I found out I was pregnant with Chase and when I'm, when I saw Abby. And so I decided to get sober that day that I found out that I was pregnant. Mm. So I called my sister from the bathroom floor. She literally came to my house and picked me up off the bathroom floor and took me to my first recovery meeting. And then that's what began the beautiful terrible process of early recovery, which is a freaking nightmare and is an, mm. and is the best thing on earth. And everything that I know, I learned in those few first years, right? And what happened, the way that I got from that kid who didn't know how to use her big feelings and sensitivity to the person I am now is art. Mm. <laughs> Art is the art and activism. So I learned in those recovery meetings that there is this way to heal, which has to do with honesty and truth and sharing. And then um, I learned that this, this sensitivity that I had as a child that led me into numbing and alcoholism, I could also use the exact same sensitivity to be a really good artist. Mm. The beginning part, the thing that you touch on in recovery, that to me feels like such an important seed. And I just, I feel like there's people who are listening to us have this conversation going, but what, what does that mean? The thing that you learn to turn into your art, What's the seed in recovery? What's the beginning? What's the thing you have to say in that room that starts your new life? I don't know if there's anything that you have to say in that new room that starts your new life. I think it's something that you have to say to yourself. Hmm. I don't believe in having long discussions with people about whether or not they should get sober. I really don't because I think it's all horseshit because I know that everyone knows. <laughs> I know that. Like 
all of those conversations, those circular conversations about, do I have a problem? Do I have a problem? Like people who don't have a drinking problem don't spend all day wondering if they have a drinking problem. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Like, if you are a person who spends all day wondering if maybe you have a drinking problem, probably. Okay. And all I care about is that there is, I don't care if people drink or not, for God's sake. What I do think is tragic is when people have something in their life, whether it's booze or certain relationship or whatever it is, that is keeping them from freedom, that is keeping them living as fully and beautifully and with as much joy and freedom as we were all designed to, right? When people have a thing in their life that they know in their gut is in the way of them and the life they were supposed to be living. That's the moment that matters, right? That's the moment. And and we don't do the thing. We don't get rid of the thing because we're scared because it's usually something that keeps us from facing the truth. And I remember being at that. I wrote an untamed. I was at my fifth recovery meeting and I finally and I said, it was the first time I spoke at a recovery meeting. And what they don't tell you about sobriety, you, okay, see what happens is when you're a really bad addict, everyone in your life wants you to get sober desperately, okay? Because you're ruining everyone's lives, right? That's <laughs> what all of us do, okay? We ruin everyone's lives, okay? So everyone wants us to get sober so bad. And so by the time we finally say, okay, I'll try, we think it's going to be some promised land, of joy because everyone has asked us for so long to get there, but it's terrible. It's awful and horrible and sucks. Okay. Early sobriety hurts so bad. It's like you've been purposefully frozen forever and now you're slowly defrosting and everything, everything hurts. Okay. And then you just all day, you just think, Oh, this is why I started drinking in the first place. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> right. It didn't work, but I see why I did that. And so I just was so freaking miserable the first week. And on the sixth day, I went to my fifth meeting and I finally stood up and I said, I am Glennon and I have been sober for six days and I feel awful. And I am afraid that what is wrong with me wasn't the booze, that what is wrong with me was beneath the booze, that what is wrong with me is actually me. Mm. Afraid that that I that everyone else has some kind of secret of life that I don't have because it feels like life is so much harder for me than everyone else. And that's all, thank you. And this woman came up after me after and she said, Okay, honey, I just want to tell you something that someone else told me in early sobriety. And that is that if there's any secret to life, the secret is that life is just really hard, not because you're doing it wrong, but because you're finally doing it right. Mm. What you're doing now is you're experience being, you're experiencing being fully human, that what you're doing is you're feeling all your feelings. And the thing is that all feelings are for feeling, all of them, even the hard ones. Mm. It's just that they hurt. And that's why so few people do it. Mm -hmm. 
And so what I have learned, and after that meeting, I thought, okay, fine, I'm going to try. I'm just going to try to show up for all of it. I'm going to try to feel all of my feelings and see what happens. And what I know, what I learned is that I thought that feeling my hard feelings would kill me, which is why I avoided it for so long. And this magical thing happens when you just stop numbing, which is that you realize that none of your hard feelings kill you, ever. You feel all of it. Mm-hmm. And what's struck me in in my own parallel realizations about this in in different forms, you know, I didn't I didn't have a problem with eating or with booze. I had a problem with trying to save people and being in relationships with men who were very bad for me. And what I realized about the the painful feelings, the things I didn't think I had a right to feel because my life was so much better than so many other people's. Not perfect, but who am I when there is this suffering in the world, you know? Mm -hmm. What I realized is that every time I refused to feel a bad feeling or a negative feeling or pain or to say, I think there's something better for me than this, I was turning my back on myself. And I would never turn my back on you in a hard moment. I would never turn my back on a child in a hard moment. Why was I turning my back on myself? And then when I think about the oxygen tank idea, I realized I was shoving every single available molecule of feeling into only the happy feelings, only the good feelings. And then my good feelings felt like they were going to explode and maybe kill everyone. And, and there was this whole tank for sadness that was empty, but it wasn't actually empty. The tank was still sitting there. I was just ignoring it. And, and something really magical and, yes, painful and awful happens when you finally acknowledge all the feelings, when, when your body's full of pins and needles because you're defrosting, is that you're like, oh, look how much bigger my body is. Look how much more space I have for all my molecules because I'm not just trying to be on the happy side. It's like it's like when you get to spread out, and you know how rare this is because you have a gigantic family, when you get to be in your bed alone and you can put like a hand and a foot in every corner and spread out, like that's what coming home to all our feelings feels like to me. Mm. You're like a little lonely in the bed, but you can also spread out in it in your own skin and see what's in there. Well, that's so good. And you also, I think like what we're both, what we both figured out is that number one, we don't have anything figured out, but (laughs) which is wonderful. Like I don't trust anybody who thinks they have it figured out. If you're not even wise enough to know you don't know shit, then I can't mess with you. (laughs) A hundred percent. I'm like, no, I know things that are true for us, like about what we deserve. And I know what the knowing means. And you gave me the words for that. But I don't know anything else, like about anything. (laughs) But here's what I love in a woman, okay? What you just said is what we figure out is that all of these things we use to numb ourselves from pain, to jump out of pain, okay? So for food, booze, drugs, for you, codependent relationships for, for other people. There's a million ones that are just more socially acceptable. Okay. Like perfect or snark or um, rage or 
or um, scroll, 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 like all of these things we use. I don't develop a relationship with myself. And then we wonder, well, that is what we do know, that we are women who have stopped abandoning ourselves. So trust ourselves. And so much of that has to do with just sitting through the pain and not running away, just staying with yourself. Mm-hmm. Right? And what else? We spend the first half of our lives being convinced by everyone on earth that we can't trust ourselves. And then we spend a while figuring out that we can, and then we get to live. Mm. So if getting sober for you was the beginning of coming back to life, was beginning to put yourself out in the world, was that the next piece? Was that the next reclamation? Because Momastery changed so much for so many people, but that came because of a Facebook post. Yeah, well, it came because the Facebook story is ridiculous. I mean... I just couldn't get to meetings because I was just dripping with children. And I noticed these people were doing this thing on Facebook called the 25 things. Do you remember that? I was like, lists oh, yeah. of themselves. and so I was like, Oh cool. I could do that. I could like write about myself for 20, a list. I could do that, but I didn't freaking read anybody else's list first. So I just wrote mine the way I talk. Okay. So like, so I wrote it out and I left and I came back to my computer an hour later and there were like, my list had been shared all of these gazillions of times from my private page. And I had like 16 new emails in my email box. And I had a bunch of calls in a row from my sister, which is always a sign that I've done something that is inappropriate. (laughs) (laughs) You know, require a lot of cleanup on her part. So, so my number six was, I'm a recovering food and alcohol addict, but I still find myself missing booze in the same twisted way we can miss people who repeatedly beat us and leave us for dead. It's true to me. But my friend Lisa's number six was, my favorite snack food is hummus. Okay. (laughs) So so the thing is that we weren't doing that there. But can I tell you that this is why, this is why I always knew you were my person because I don't know how to do the hummus number six. I only know how to do the Glennon number six. And I made a joke recently, which was my first like aha thing. I was with some friends at one, in, in one of the environments where I feel the most insane, which is like events in my industry. I don't know how to socialize and, and do the small talk. So I ran into a friend who was really going through something. He was... Uh, not not my story to tell. Anyway, he was really going through a thing and there was a little group of us talking and he was like, yeah, you know, with all this shit going on in my life, I just don't know how to talk to anybody here. And I said, well, my uh, tendency is to want to ask a question that is so probably inappropriate at the Golden Globes that then I have to swallow my own tongue to keep myself from doing it. But when people say, what's up with you? I want to be like, you know, same old, same old. How are you? Are you processing your childhood trauma? How are things going? Like, that's what I want to talk about. I don't know how to do what what did you get at the hors d'oeuvre table? I don't get it. So thank you for a very honest number six. You know, 
so I had that feeling of wanting to swallow, right? Like that golden if I was in my, my kid's playroom. Like I just was like, oh my God, what did I do? Um, and I just remember feeling like, oh my God, how do I take it back? I called my sister. She's like, you can't take it back. It's the interwebs. Like you can't take it back. So I was just embarrassed and felt overly vulnerable. But then I started opening these emails, Sophia. No, you know, without me telling you what they were, they were from people who I had known my entire life, but who I had freaking known because we were so busy talking about the goddamn hummus. And how perfect everything was and how shiny and wonderful we were that we had never brought to each other the heavy stuff that we are actually meant to, to help each other carry, right? And what I learned in those emails, they just said, you know, me too, me too, a million different ways, like a me too. And so I think how you get from that to the writing is like, there's just these moments in your life where you figure out, oh, this is something I could do. Like, I'm just this little person, this one person, but this thing I just did seems to like have helped people. Like, first of all, it helped me because I like this. Like, I can see myself. I can feel myself. I, I feel healthy when I'm doing this. I feel strong. I feel visible. I feel, and also it seems to be doing something for other people. So that's like, that Venn diagram was like, a treasure map. It was just like, oh, like, you know, like the little tinglys went off inside me. I was like, this is, this could be my thing. And what a weird thing. Like, so, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to say a bunch of crazy shit on the interwebs. <laughs> no, like I knew there was an art to it. And I knew that like truth telling could be this incredible key that could unlock people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not only did it help, was it a service to people, but it helped me feel more human and it helped me find my people, Mm. right? Because I could be at 64,000 cocktail parties and I will never know who my people are because we're not talking about anything that helps you find your people, but like one honest essay and your people show up. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got to the writing thing was just like, and then so after that um, Facebook thing, I started, I promised myself I was going to write every single morning because, you know, the mornings Mm. are magic time. And so I started sending a group of friends an email every morning that was just my thoughts about the world. Okay. So these poor people, like I would send page long emails each morning and then If they didn't write back to me, I would ping them throughout the day and just be like, hi, just wondering if you had any thoughts about my thoughts. Okay. Finally, my friend Joanna sent me an email with a link to how to start a blog. And she was like, gee, this is what people do who have as many thoughts and feelings (laughs) as you do. (laughs) Bless Joanna. Yeah. So it's a family joke. My writing career started because my friends did not want to read my shit anymore. Like that is. And then my sister, who, you know, is my life. She decided after a really hard divorce, right about that time that she was going to quit her corporate job, move to Rwanda and spend her life prosecuting uh, people who committed sex crimes against children. Okay. That's what she was going to do. Mm. and 
she, right before she left, she brought me a new laptop because my laptop was like total crap and it would turn off every 25 minutes. So I couldn't write. So she brought me a new laptop and this letter that said, I'm going to go do this thing that I have to do. And you're going to stay here and you're going to do this thing that you have to do, which is you, which is that you were made to write. And you're going to sit down every morning and you're going to open this computer and you're going to write with the voice of the person who wrote that Facebook list. And I'm telling Mm. you for the next year. And so I do what my sister tells me to do. So that's how I started writing Monastery. Mm. And then what's the experience? What's the experience of building out that community of, of realizing that you had created a homing beacon for so many people? It was beautiful. It was wonderful. It just, I sat down every morning and I wrote and I um, promised myself, my rule for myself was that I would post publish every single day after an hour and a half, no matter what. And I think that that saved me from perfectionism, which is what keeps most people from putting their art out in the world. Right. Mm. Uh, I think had I not had that rule for myself, I would have decided every day that it wasn't good enough and then I'll just fix the next day and then I'll fix the next day. And but I saved myself from that with that rule. People started coming in, you know, and so I never, I still to this day would never know. I never uh, promoted my blog anywhere. I never had an ad on my blog. I never did any, any of the things that you're supposed to do. And it just kept growing and growing. And then it turned into Together Rising, of course, which is really what I think every word that I write or speak is really about Together Rising, which is our nonprofit that is run by all women and is just become the leading American organization for reunifying families at the border for um, still, still um, serving and dealing with the refugee crisis. And more importantly to us, just as we're just first responders, just every day, just meeting the needs of women and children who are in crisis. And you know, I think so that what I've seen and what I believe is that life gives you these little quirks, talents, whatever they are. And then, and then you start showing up for your talent or your art, but really it's just all to get to the big game of service, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like the art is just like, the stream that gets you to the big river, like anybody who I know and love and respect in the world is somebody who has thought that they were really like, Oh, I'm good at this thing. And this is what I'm going to do. But that's not the thing. Like mm-hmm. that's the thing that gets you to the thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the, the, I don't know how to describe it. It's like the art is just the hook. It's just the hook. And then you end up at the big game, which is service and activism. And, and usually first it's philanthropy, right? So you just start thinking, oh, I'm just supposed to like save people. I'm supposed to help people. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? So that's what happened. It, we just started reading so many stories of people who were suffering and couldn't put food on the table, couldn't buy diapers, couldn't do this and that. So we started matching up people, you know, raising money for hurting people. Then over a long period of time, we just started asking ourselves harder questions. Like, why are these people suffering so much? Like, why are these people who are working so hard, having so much trouble making ends meet, right? Like, Mm -hmm. what is going on? And so that, and right around that time, I read this quote 
that said, you can only pull people out of the river for so long until you have to look up river and figure out who's pushing them in. So that's when I started to look deeper and ask the right questions and realize that wherever there is great suffering, there is always great profit. Yes. Right. So yes, there are, we are at Together Rising like hand over fist trying to help people who have been traumatized by um, school shootings or by the um, unbelievably harmful and traumatic drills that they're now doing with all kids. All these people are suffering. Why? Okay, let's look up River and look at the NRA. And let's look at the politicians who are paid off by the NRA because that's where profit is going for this suffering. Okay, we can continue to build LGBTQ centers all over the country for kids who have been kicked out of their house. We can do mentorship. We can do, but, but what we also have to do is look up River at the religious institutions who are poisoning people mm-hmm. from and creating the shame that is then causing these families to kick the, the kids out, right? We can, we can just over and over again, every problem we have, we can look up river and realize. So, so it's like art led me to philanthropy and then philanthropy led me to activism because anybody who is a philanthropist for long figures out that you can't, you can't stay just in philanthropy because you become no. codependent with power. Hmm. Like, oh, is that a good the people upriver can keep throwing them in and profiting because they've got these other people just pulling them out all the time, mm-hmm. right? Like their partner, you become their partner. If you aren't also, it's like, it has to be and both. You have to be pulling people out of the river and you have to be constantly looking up river and giving living hell to the people who are pushing them in. Yes. Yes. And I think that's why when people ask why women like us are so political. That's always the question, right? And I like to put it in quotes, and then I realize people listening at home can't see me doing that. <laughs> I'm literally air quoting, and I'm like, what am I doing? But when people say, like, well, what do you think gives you the right to be political? Because everything is politics. We're alive. We're breathing. If, if we're not active politically for each other, if we're not talking about reforming these broken systems, if we're not talking about making sure we're electing people who are going to keep the air clean so that kids don't die of asthma, there's, there could be nothing more important to me. And, and I think, you know, in, in, in our different ways, we took very much the same path. Philanthropy is always the window in. And if you really care about the philanthropic cause that gets you up in the morning, you absolutely continue sinking and getting deeper and then you see the systems at play that make this problem exist in the first place. It it feels like a in a way like a mirroring of of the thing you were discussing earlier that shift from the external to the internal. Because really in in the personal, the external to the internal is a deepening of your knowledge of yourself. And and then when I think about it in the macro, the external, the stuff we get distracted by out here, the shiny surface, we can shift to the internal, which is really in the macro, I think about the internal being the roots. Like if we dig down and we look at the roots, it changes everything. And and one of the things I love so much is that you've talked about how the that shift takes you from this idea of faith to a true knowing everybody has faith everybody has faith that's Mm. it's just what you have faith in Mm. right 
I mean, I have stopped having faith that anyone else knows what I should do. Mm-hmm. Like I have stopped having faith that I have stopped believing that I can outsource my faith to a bunch of mm-hmm. ministers. Why? Because they went to school for a few years about God. Like the fact that you can get a real, you can get a degree in God is so baffling to me. I don't even get me started. But but that's a scary um, thing to think about because we are human beings. Human beings love, we want to be independent and then we don't. We fiercely want to be independent and then we fiercely want someone to tell us what to do, right? I get that completely. And so because of that, it is simpler in some ways to outsource our faith to ministers. It is simpler in some ways to outsource our political lives, which just means our lives, to politicians. It is, it is simpler to outsource our life decisions to therapists, right? Mm. All of these things that we do to put faith in things in forces outside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Instead of, to put, I no longer believe that there is like, I truly believe that the, that the God we speak of, that the higher power that we speak of is inside of ourselves, right? I do not think it's somewhere out you know, standing away from us, judging us from the outside, organizing us into groups. I think the, the deepest, truest parts of ourselves are the divine, right? And that is why religion to me, in some of the ways that it's set up, is the hardest place to find God, okay? I think that fundamentalist religions are the single hardest place to find God in so much as what we find about fundamentalist religions is that the first thing that fundamentalist religions have to do is separate you from yourself, teach you that you cannot trust yourself. Okay. In fundamentalist Christian culture, the way that this is done is they pull scripture. You, I was told from, from very young, your heart is wicked. Your heart is wicked. You cannot trust yourself. You cannot lean on your own understanding. You, everything was, you cannot trust yourself. Okay. So the reason why we train people not to trust themselves is so we will trust them instead. Mm-hmm. And the scary part of religion is that they say to you, trust God. Don't trust yourself, trust God. But what they're really saying is don't trust yourself, trust us. Yeah. Trust our system. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Nothing to do with God. <laughs> right. Nothing. Nothing. The, the, the difference between religion and God is just night and day. So, so what I would say is I am forever suspicious and wary of any institution or group of people or person who tries to separate me from myself. I will never abandon myself again, right? I will abandon every institution. Mm. I will abandon every relationship. I will abandon every expectation that that requires me to abandon myself. Mm-hmm. so and, and I and I find that so amazing like so I think it like talk to my kids about this recently how strange is it that the first rite of passage we have for human beings is to give themselves away to other people like I vow that I will never abandon you to another human being like I feel like I want to create some kind of rite of passage for my 16 year olds that is just like no 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 first you will never abandon yourself. 
right? And you will never choose anything else that requires you to abandon yourself because that will be proof in itself that that's a bad decision. Mm-hmm. But it's like, we have to, have, before we say, I love you, before I say, I give myself to you, don't we have to know who the I is? Mm. The coolest wedding I've ever been to, two of my dearest girlfriends, my girlfriend Emily and her wife Michelle, when they got married, they designed their ceremony to talk about each of them as individuals and then their relationship as a unit. And they Mm -hmm. delivered wedding vows to the I, the you, and the we. So good. So good. Because Mm -hmm. they wanted to commit Michelle wanted to commit to Emily as she is. Emily wanted to commit to Michelle as she is. Emily committed to Emily. Michelle committed to Michelle. And then they committed to the unit, to the third thing that is them together. Third thing. It's a third thing. It's a third thing. And then the wild thing is, is that you can't even commit to that third thing, so because you have to commit to everything that third thing will become. Mm. Because it will never be the same. It will always be the, it will always change. Like Abby says to me all the time, which I think is the most beautiful thing. I love you. And I already love every woman you will become Mm. because it's like, we fall in love with these ideas of people, but people nature are supposed to evolve and change over and over again. Yeah. You have these relationships where people are holding each other back because they want the person to be the same, right? So we have to, it's like when we fall in love with other people, we can't even fall in love with other people. We have to fall in love with that person's process. Mm-hmm. And-, and we have to commit to upholding their process rather than, to your point, clinging to who they are today or who they were yesterday. It's not hard for people to see the journey from Momastery to your first book and to your second book and 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 to learn about what your journey was with Craig and I'm I'm so amazed by the way the two of you loved each other almost more in the taking a part of your marriage than you'd even loved each other in it so that you could build a better family because the family is the point but I I want to talk about Abby. (laughs) I want to talk about you meeting Abby. I want to talk about how you couldn't have written Untamed without Abby and and what Abby helped you unlock in yourself because it's you with Abby. And now I feel like I can tell the people the secret. So the night we met and we were pretzeled on the couch barefoot together, I had been speaking to Abby because she and I had met a few months before, again, as as two, you know, people out there on the on the activism front. And I am an unabashed, as much as I don't understand a lot of sports, I am a mental soccer fan. Yes. Like are. I I become I become one of those people like when you do the videos in your house during the tournaments and everyone is screaming, I become that person. It's like I, it's like I, I become the Hulk or like when a great white shark, when its little eyes get covered right before it attacks something, I, some other part of me comes out and I turn into a crazy person. Okay. I so, mean, is this just women's soccer or is it men's soccer? 
No, like I, I, well, no, I'm a crazy person for women's soccer. I really like men's soccer. Like I've, I've traveled to see men's soccer games in places. Yeah. Though I'm like, I'm really, I'm a fan person i'm a soccer person i i played ayso soccer when i was little um i'll send you a photo of me in my little uniform but i i just love it and and abby had just led the women's national team to win the world cup and and was doing so as such a heart forward activist while leading a team and proving as women often do that they can literally do 17 things and spin a plate on their head at once and look elegant doing it. And, and so we all, we all got to meet at this event and I was like, there's the team. What am I going to say? Oh my God. And then before I know it, Abby's walking up to me and I'm like, there, who is, what does she do? What's who's she coming? Me? She's coming. She's coming to me. And she walks up and goes, all these girls over here are too scared to talk to you. They're all huge One Tree Hill fans. We think you're a badass. And also, we know you're a soccer fan. Come over here and have a drink with us. And I was like, okay, Abby. And, and that's how Abby and I became friends. And so we had stayed in touch for a, a while and talked about the deep things. And and she was going through all these amazing transitions. Again, heart forward. And then she calls me and says, hey, you're going to do this together tour with my girl, Glennon. And I was like, oh, God, Abby, I just love her. I think she's so cool. We're going to be in conversation tonight. It's like a fireside and I can't wait. I just like I feel like she's my people. And she goes, yeah, no, she is. I mean, and, and you know, she's my girl. And I was like, no, I know. I mean, like she's going to also she's going to be my girl, too. Like, I just know. Right. Like she's our people. And Abby goes, no, 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 no. You're missing it. So if she's my girl. And I went, what? And I was like, oh my God, who knows? And she was like, nobody knows. And I was like, oh my God. So when we were in the little, in the backstage area that night, I even waited until the people who were around us were out of earshot. And I was like, Glennon, I know that Abby loves you and that you love Abby and I'm so happy. And you were like, oh my God, I'm so happy that I can talk about this with someone. Okay, now we know how barefoot on the couch yeah we got like the the magic of of knowing that you both had been like just hit by the lightning bolt of this love that you still that still maintains this electricity between you two tell us everything about it because you had a big you had a lot of stuff that you had to kind of cast aside to live your biggest, truest life and your, and your biggest, truest love. So what, what do you do? I mean, I almost didn't do it. I almost just, I had finally, so, so we met at a, um, at the first event for love warrior, which was problematic. So, (laughs) Because I was launching Love Warrior, which was being touted all over the place. It was an open book club pick. It was supposed to be like the biggest book of the year. And it was, the tagline was the the epic marriage redemption story. Okay. So this is literally the book about how Craig and I saved our marriage. And then I go to the first event and meet Abby. Can I ask you something though? Did that feel fair that people were calling it that? 
No. Because, because yes, your book was a redemption story about two people choosing to love each other, but I never read it as a story of you choosing to stay. I, I read it as a story of you choosing to do the work to find out why it broke in the first place. Right. And thank God we did do the work because, you know, I thought we were doing all of that work to have our happily ever after, but mm. we were doing all of that work so that we could leave our marriage with respect and trust for each other mm. um, and spend the rest of our lives co-parenting mm. together. So I, yes, fell madly in love with Abby in I- immediately, like upon first sight, which I can't even say still without gagging because <laughs> I be so upset that for the rest of my life, I have to tell that truth because it sounds so cheesy and I just am never a person who believed in any kind of romantic love in my life. Like I used to say, so I'm just, it was my family's like thing. I'm just, I'm more like a, you know, some people are like lasers and they love one person with their love, but I'm more like a floodlight. Like I just love, like I didn't ever have that mm. love before, never, which now I kind of have some more clues as to why, but I, <laughs> <laughs> but I, madly in love with her immediately and we were in the same room for a couple hours with a bunch of other writers at this big like librarians convention where we were speaking to a thousand librarians on this dais together we both had this like ridiculously magical moment and then we both lost our minds so like she stood up to speak do her part and she talked for like three minutes and sat down like forgot her whole speech then I stood up to speak and then I didn't I completely disregarded my speech and just said a bunch of things that I thought would make her think I was cool. Like that was my, in front of a thousand libraries. That's what I did. Okay. So, so then we went our separate ways. And as you know, she went back to Portland. I went back to Florida. We started writing each other letters. We fell deeply and deeply in love through letters to each other. She actually gave them to me like all bound up. Um, mm. later it was like a stack like this, mm. but we never saw each other again. I dismantled my entire life and she dismantled her entire life before we had ever been alone in a room together or ever touched each other. Um, and I think that's because it was an insanely romantic, magical thing, but I think it's also because I understood very clearly that I was at a huge turning point in my life that this wasn't really about, will I stay with Craig or go with Abby? It wasn't that. It was like, will I abandon myself again? Like I have myself rise up. Like I have felt my true self, like the girl I was before the world told me who to be. I have felt her just like rise up inside me and rattle the bars of my cage. And will I allow myself to be free? Mm. Will I do and and so it felt very much like a life or death situation, and I think it was. And a spirit, you know, a soul life or death situation. And and you know that you know, I almost didn't do it even so because I had so many tamed ideas about motherhood, you know. As you know, imagine being me and looking at Tish and thinking, oh God. Like this child cries for eight hours if I can't tie her shoes fast enough. Like, so I'm going to break up the family. (laughs) (laughs) Christ. And I just had this, you know, I just thought a good mom doesn't hurt her children. 
Mm. A good mom doesn't hurt her children. And then one day I was braiding Tish's hair and I looked at her and I thought, okay, I am staying in this marriage for her, but would I want this marriage for her? Mm -hmm. And if I wouldn't want this marriage for her, then why am I modeling bad love and calling that good mothering? Mm. And the answer is simple. It's because somewhere along the line, I swallowed the idea that a good mother is a murder. Mm. And a mother earns her motheringness, proves her love by burying herself, by burying her needs, her ambition, her dream, desire in honor of her children. By being oh so selfless for the others. As if our needs are mutually exclusive. See, mm. that poison root, that, that, that is a poison pill that culture gives women. Mm-hmm. That you can't go for what is good for you. Because what is good for you will necessarily be bad for your children and your people. Mm. Which is such horseshit. Like, mm-hmm. what is good for you will always inevitably be what is good and true for your people. Because there's no such thing as one-way liberation. Mm-hmm. Right? Liberate ourselves when we live true to ourselves that automatically grants permission to everyone in our circle to live true to themselves also. Mm. So that is really, I mean, that was one of the clearest moments I had of my, of really how tamed I was because I am a woman who is smarter than that. Like I know that love is not about slowly dying, right? I know Mm. love is not about disappearing, but about emerging. I know that I would never want my daughter to slowly die inside of a marriage. And yet I was doing it in honor of my daughter, which means that I had been brainwashed. Mm -hmm. It is very clear that a good mother is not a martyr, right? That is a terrible burden and a terrible legacy to leave for your children, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is a, children of martyr mothers grow up thinking that they have to be martyrs also. And they also grow up knowing that they were the reason their mom stopped living. Mm. They also grow up knowing that they never knew their mother mm. because she's buried beneath all of those expectations and shoulds and shouldn'ts, right? That is why Carl Jung said that the greatest burden a child can bear is the unlived life of a parent, mm. right? So that's just one version of these roots, these beliefs we have to rip out from under us. Like a good mother is not a martyr, right? A good mother is a model. Right, a good mother, mother who knows that her children will only allow themselves to live as fully as she allows herself to live. So she must not settle for any relationship or life or community or nation that is less beautiful than the one she'd want for her child. Mm-hmm. So when people say, you know, it's amazing you did this in spite of your children, fuck that. No, I did this because of my children. Mm-hmm. But you did it because of them, because you were willing to look deeper than what we're trained to do. Because to your point, women, we as women see our mothers be martyrs. And then we have this unconscious or subconscious understanding that we are slowly marching toward the death of self. Because once we have a kid, we're going to have to do it too. And and we don't even know that that's what it is because everyone gives us the fairy tale, which says once you have your partner and your baby, you're just going to feel whole and happy every single second of every single day. So we're, we're told two opposing things and we don't know what's true. So we kind of ignore it and we blindly stumble toward the future, which is either scary or perfect, but both feel wrong. And then it perpetuates. And you said, stop, look underneath, go to the root. Oh, 
I'm afraid to cause pain that might feel in the, in the present, in the moment, catastrophic to my child. So I'm sentencing her to a lifetime of pain that exists on a scale from potentially dull and consistent to catastrophic every single day. Well, that certainly doesn't make sense. Let's do the momentary so we can change the future. That's it. But it's that, it's that pause, right? It's that Sela. It's that like, mm. it's the difference between living an unexamined or an examined life, right? If we choose to live unexamined lives. We will chase dirty pink bunnies for the rest of our lives and wonder why we feel like we're slowly dying. And we will take, train mm. our children to do the same thing. I think it comes down to that thing I love that Whitman said, which is just like our, our duty is to re-examine every single thing we've been taught in school, in a church, mm-hmm. in a book, and dismiss whatever insults our souls, mm. right? It insults my soul, the idea that love that, that a woman's form of love is to disappear in any way, right? Insults my soul. And so, and so, yeah, I just decided that the way that I can mother my children well is to live the truest, freest, most beautiful, most whole life that I can possibly imagine mm. and just fully expect them to do the same. And that's getting untamed. I think so. Yeah, because mm. I do when we pass down these ideas of martyrdom is we're just taming our girls and our boys we're taming them you know that's mm. what I was doing no our kids know like they know when we're in loving relationships or not mm-hmm. and so when we when we make, when we stay in, in a relationship that is not healthy and that is broken we are teaching our children what love is mm. right so you talk in the book about how so many of us have been so controlled for so long and that what the world really needs is more and more women who are completely out of control. Mm -hmm. And I think about this time that we find ourselves in, the world is out of control. And we're also, so many of us, stuck at home with ourselves. This could be an opportunity for that Sela that you referenced, that pause to let it sink and settle can you explain what you mean by out of control women? And, and can you maybe as an expert at this offer to listeners a couple of nudges toward how to get reflective with self? Control. I think most of my pain in my life has been trying to control things. Like I realized this when I fell in love with Abby and I didn't realize that I was such a controlling person before I knew Abby because I just, I always knew that I was like the leader. (laughs) (laughs) Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) Everything always. But I just thought that I had really good ideas, you know, and that I cared about my people so much. And so I thought that my um, duty was to lead and guide them, right? And that just always seemed to kind of work for me. Um, well, I mean, I got divorced, so clearly it wasn't working. <laughs> but, but then when I married Abby, it, so Abby's really good at communicating things to me very clearly and kindly. And one day I was doing the thing that I do where I was like manipulating the situation behind the scenes, 
that I, I think people don't know what I'm doing when I'm controlling them, you know? And she stopped me and she said, honey, I need you to know that I see what you're doing. I see that you're trying to control me. And, and what I need you to know is that that hurts my feelings so much because it makes me feel like you don't trust me. Mm. And I trust you so much. I trust you so much. And I just want you to trust me um, and believe in me. Mm. And that's when I realized, oh, okay. So I have been trying to love people by controlling them. When in fact, love is the opposite of control. Mm. Like we can control people or we can love people, but we can't do both because love requires trust, right? And we only control things that we don't trust. Mm. So what we're getting at to there to with that is it took me to see love and control as opposites in my relationships for me to be able to see love and control as opposites for myself. Okay. Mm. The amount of things that women try to control about ourselves, right? We can't let our hair go, right? We can't let our hair be what it is. We have to fix it. We can't let our skin be what it is. We have to fix it. We can't let our bodies be what they are. We have to control them. We can't let our emotions be what they are. We have to control them. We can't let our ambition be what it is. We have to control it. We can't let our dreams be as big as they are. We have to control them. Like, we can't let our body, like we do not love ourselves. Okay. Whatever freaking commercials, soap commercials tell you about what is self-love is not what self-love is. What self-love is, is when you can leave yourself the fuck alone because you trust yourself. Mm. I do not love my body. And I know that, and it has nothing to do with the shape of my body. Okay. I don't give a shit about that. The, re- the reason I know I don't love my body is because I'm still constantly trying to control it, right? Mm. Because so much of my day, because of stuff that was ingrained in my bones when I was little about how a woman earns her worthiness by staying small. Mm. I spend so much of my time and energy thinking about food and thinking about exercise because I'm trying to control my body to keep it small, okay? Instead of just letting it be whatever it will be. Mm. So what I mean by, I mean, I stopped dyeing my hair, right? I mean, I still throw bleach at it sometimes. I think it's kind of fun, but like the gray is fun. Okay. I stopped Botoxing my face and just let it be what it is. I stopped control. Like I have stopped. And, and what I figured out is, oh, my hair is awesome. Oh, mm-hmm. my awesome. Uh, I've stopped trying to control my anger. I'm not trying to manage my anger anywhere. I'm harnessing my anger into change. Yeah. My anger is good and smart and wise. Yes, because you're angry about the brokenness that you see. Women are trying to think that every time we feel angry, there's something wrong with us. When actually, mm-hmm. you know, it just means there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. And every marginalized group will always be trained to be ashamed of their anger. And the reason why is because angry people tend to demand change. Mm-hmm. Simple, 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 right? So that's what I mean by out of control is that I don't, it means when I think she's out of control, what I mean is she, what I think is, Oh, she's out of their control. Yes. Out of, of harmful religions control. She's out of the beauty industry's control. She's out of um, imbalance and unjust political control. She, that's what I mean. Like women who are out of control of outside power mm-hmm. and have returned to themselves and trust their inner power. And when you're out of their control, you can be 
in love with yourself, with your knowing, with your people. You stop gas. You, when you finally see all the gaslighting for what it is, you mm. realize, no, 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 no. Like, all oh, my feelings are okay. Mm. My body's okay. My skin's okay. My hair's okay. My pain is okay. My ambition is okay. My desires are okay. Like, mm. things are good. Everything that we are trying to unlearn comes from the basic thing that women are taught in a patriarchal culture, which is that you are bad. Mm. You are bad and you cannot trust yourself. And so we have to reject that on every level and return to we are good and we can trust ourselves. One of my favorite things I've read that got said about your book, because obviously, you know, I love you and I'm also your biggest fan in Parade magazine. Yeah, I read all the reviews, obviously. Um, they said something that I loved so much. They they talked about your first two books and they said, if Carry On Warrior and Love Warrior were about the battles over self-compassion and unnumbing from life's pain, Untamed gives readers the blueprint for finally, maybe, having a chance at peace. And what you're saying to me about getting out of their control and back into self, which really taps us back into each other in a real way, in an authentic way, that, that makes my heart feel at peace. And so I'm, I'm excited for everyone to have been able during this conversation to bask in your words and your wisdom, but also to have the book. It's not lost on me, by the way, that under its perfect glittery cover with all of the colors and all of the passion that does, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the book looks like an x-ray of your insides, but, but under the cover, the book is blue. Like it's a blueprint. Oh, I love that. I love it so much. I want to ask you a hundred more questions, but I'm not going to because you have a life and children to go and, you know, attend to or just yourself. <laughs> TikToks. This is what my children do now. We call um, it home. You know what? In a time of corona, I think it's all fair and good. You know what they're doing, Glennon? They're in film school. That's what TikTok is. They're learning to tell stories and edit sounds. Yeah. No, I think that's completely fair. But I do have one. I have one last question for you. And I'm so excited to ask you. We're we're talking about being a work in progress. That's Mm. that's the whole theme of the show. And I I wonder when you hear the phrase, whether it's something that's personal or professional or in any other circle that goes in that Venn diagram what feels like a work in progress in your life right now okay I'll tell you the real one because <laughs> I did have as you're saying, <laughs> good ones I think it's the body shit and I'm so mm. I'm so annoyed about it Sophia I just I'm like I'm 44 years old mm. I think I had to google that yesterday <laughs> in an interview somebody said how old are you I was like shit I think it's 43 44 yeah, I I have times in my life where I get the body. You know, I became bulimic when I was 10. And ever since then, I've struggled with body. And I don't, it's more like, it's like compulsive thoughts about it. It's like, it's kind of like being harassed by somebody really mean, but like the collar is from inside the house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and And it's so embarrassing for me because I feel like I'm supposed to be this, 
this leader for women and like this feminist person. And so I feel like for God's sakes, I should at least have this body thing figured out and I should not care and I should be freer about it. Um, but the truth is I told Abby recently that I bet like, I bet it, it gets worse and better at different times. When things mm. are out of control, it usually gets worse, but I bet 50% of all of my thoughts are about food and, mm. and, out. and that makes me so furious because of the opportunity cost right? Because I'm such a smart and powerful woman. And when I think about the art or the activism that could have happened, if I had that 50% back, that's the cost, right? That's mm. the cost of these freaking messages. So anyway, I had gotten to the point where life, and this is just, I'm just going to live this and it's fine. But I feel like maybe not, like maybe I should, could, not should, maybe I could do the work. <laughs> I'm just tired of all the work. You know, it's mm. hard to progress forever. It's so hard being human. But I'm I thinking. Because everyone lies and tells us one day we're going to wake up and feel great. And then eventually you realize, no, I'm not. And then you think I should do the work. And then you do the work and you get to the end of, let's call it a worksheet for lack of a better term. And then there's a new worksheet and you're like, I'm sorry, what I have to, this is cyclical. This goes on forever. If I want to be a conscious person, I have to do this forever. Oh, <laughs> so much. And then I sometimes idea that really, it's like, we all just have the same freaking three worksheets our whole entire dim life. Mm. Like all of my issues are really just like three things and they just keep coming back over and over again. Mm -hmm. Iterations every decade of my life, you know, yeah. it would be cool if by the time I was 50, I was a little bit freer in the body food progress is where I will. Mm. That's my work in progress. I love that. And you know, Maybe you've done so much work on so many systems that affect us out there that now that inner part of you is saying, yeah, you got to look at the one that affects us in here, too. Mm -hmm. Love me the way you love the world. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much. I'm sure next Tuesday I'll have it all figured out. <laughs> next Tuesday I'm just going to get a photo of a worksheet and you'll be like, I did it. <laughs> Mm. Well, my sister, I love you. I'm I'm so grateful for your book. I'm so freaking proud of you, which probably feels weird, but I am. I'm just like, God, I'm proud of her. Thank you. I'm proud to know you. I'm so grateful to be your friend and sister. Mm. Thank you for sharing all of this with with all of us. Thanks for trusting me with this beautiful community you've made here. They're so cool. They really are so cool. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. This episode was edited by Matt Sasaki. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy. Brilliant Anatomy.